We will have uh, a significant amount of time to continue singing together after, uh, after the message and after we share the Lord's table. We structured things a little bit differently this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you. And in those Bibles, it's page 905, John chapter 19, and I'm going to be reading starting in the end of verse 16 up through verse 27. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that my words would be faithful to your word. That I would only say that which is true. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd work in our hearts. We can't make ourselves change, but you can. So, Lord, I pray that you would change us where we need to be changed. I pray that our worship of you would grow. Father, if there are some here today who have never uh, believed in Jesus, have never found uh, forgiveness in Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. You are mighty to do that. You have done it many times. We pray that you would do it again. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the message of the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our fifth week in the betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion narrative in John chapters 18 and 19. As a pastor prepares to write and deliver a sermon, one of the questions he should ask is, what is the tone of this text? Our preaching should reflect the tone of the text that we are reading. This segment of Scripture is a heart-wrenching 
somber, and often devastating passage. What's happening to Jesus is undeserved, it is corrupt, and it is tragic. We're supposed to see that here. Yet, rising up through the tragedy, our eyes are meant to behold another reality. Our God has not lost control. Jesus is not simply a victim. No, far from it. He is accomplishing God's good purposes. In the pain of these scenes, the Lord is working the greatest good that has ever been accomplished. Today's passage continues with these competing themes, the tragedy and the sovereignty of God. And we're going to see the heinousness of evil, unjust suffering, mockery, and scorn. But we will also see the gospel proclaimed, the gospel of a Savior who would go to great lengths to protect the ones he loves. On the cross, we see this so clearly. And we're going to look at today's passage through four snapshots that we see in this passage. We're going to talk about the cross, the inscription, the fulfillment, and the protection. The cross, the inscription, the fulfillment, and the protection. John himself was a first-hand witness of these events. My prayer for us in this time is that we would see the depth of the love the Father has for us, for all of his people, and the depth of suffering the Son would endure to protect his sheep. So we start with the cross. The word cross or crucify appears in this passage six times. The cross is the instrument by which Romans punished their criminals by which they made examples of those who thought they could subvert the government, not follow the laws, not follow the rules. And while there are debates about the exact shape of the cross, which I will not get into with our time this morning, what is undebated is the horrific type of death that crucifixion led to. Those crucified did not die because of crucifixion. They died because of suffocation. They would put a, foot, a ledge for your feet on the cross. Not to comfort you. But to extend your torment. The cross was a spectacle. We see it in this passage, right? It's something that, that as the criminal is lifted up. Everyone would look on and see. Oftentimes, those being crucified would be jeered, cursed at, shouted at, spit at. And Jesus was no exception to this. He himself foretold that he would be lifted up. And by that means, he would draw all people to himself. That he would be uh, seen by all, lifted up. In today's passage, Jesus is lifted up. And looked upon. The cross was meant to be Rome's way of saying, do not mess 
with us. This is what happens. Watching people suffer and die on a cross was to be a strong deterrent to criminals. You do not want this to happen to you. The Jewish people would feel the full vent of the wrath of Rome about 30 years later, between the years 66 and 73 AD-ish, as the city of Jerusalem was laid siege to. And, And historians of the time record that there were so many crucifixions that there weren't enough crosses for all the bodies that were crucified. Jesus here goes out toward Golgotha, the place of a skull, also known as Calvary. Most likely outside the the north gate. It was outside the gates of Jerusalem. Very important that it was outside the gates of Jerusalem. It's, It's most likely, the most likely positioning of it, for those of you who have been to Israel, is what is now the the place of the church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. Jesus went bearing his own cross. Did you notice that? Bearing his own cross. Did did a question come into your mind when you read that? Jesus went out bearing his own cross? What question might have come to some minds? Didn't somebody else carry Jesus' cross? Who? Simon of Cyrene. And, And so... The question is, is, did John remember things wrong? No. What we're meant to see here is from a firsthand witness that there was a period of time when Jesus did carry his own cross, which would have been common for criminals to have to carry their own cross. But it also would have been common after receiving the full beating. Last week, we talked about the flogging that Jesus received at the hands of Pilate. He would have, before this scene, then received the full flogging, the 40 lashes, minus one, the the full vent of, of the anger and wrath against criminals. And so he would have begun to carry his cross, and like many criminals before him, would have not had the strength to carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. And therefore, they would have had to compel a passerby, Simon, to then pick up the cross and finish that journey. The cross became too much for Jesus to bear. But Jesus carried his cross. The instrument upon which he himself would be killed, he carried toward Golgotha. John makes no mention of Simon. John also makes no mention of Jesus' interaction with the other criminals, as some of the gospel writers do, right? John is driving straight at the heart of this passage, what Jesus is accomplishing here, that it was Jesus who accomplished it. We are left in this passage only to see that he bore his own cross. He did what he alone can do. None other can make this journey. And he ended up outside the gate, the place where sacrifices were to be burned. The place where sin was to be paid for and done away with. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, right? As he hung on the cross. There they crucified him. 
and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. He was numbered with the transgressors, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53. The cross was the ultimate symbol of disgrace and punishment for the vilest of criminals. Jesus deserves none of it. And yet, here at the cross, Jesus is disgraced that the Lord might have victory. And you, the scriptures say, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How did he set it aside? Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, this most vile display, crucified like a common criminal, what was actually happening. God was accomplishing his good purposes. He was nailing our sins to the cross. Jesus was becoming the offering for sin outside the gate, suffering for us. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. The utter disgrace that Jesus endures here is ours. The shame the beating, being crushed, dying among criminals. All of this belongs to us rightfully, but he bears it. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. He becomes the scapegoat. He bears the dishonor at the cross. As those convicted were crucified, it was common for there to be something written above them, naming their transgression, saying what they did wrong. And Pilate makes sure that this is true for Jesus as well. What is the charge against Jesus? King of the Jews. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. All four Gospels record some portion of that inscription. But only John records the dispute between the chief priests and Pilate. It makes sense given that John was right there for it. While some have speculated that Pilate... Well, let me ask you, just, just to think for a second. Why did Pilate write the king of the Jews and not this man said he's the king of the Jews? Some people speculate that maybe Pilate was hedging his bets, 
right? He'd already said this guy was innocent, right? So he was now going to say, like, I kind of maybe believe this. Some people think that. I'm not convinced by that argument. I actually think that Pilate did what he did to stick it to the Jewish people. That he, he did it because they had just backed him into a corner. Remember in last week's passage, what did they, how did they back Pilate into a corner? What did they say to him? Right. If you let this guy go, you're not Caesar's friend. This guy said he's a king. We have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate says, oh, okay, you want to do that to me? I'm going to do it to you. And they're saying, no, we don't think he's the king of the Jews. He's say he said he's the king of the Jews. And he says, no, what I've written, I've written. So everybody can look on, and not just, not just the Hebrew, because what languages was it written in? Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, or Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. That meant everybody who was there could read what it said. The king of the Jews. And so Pilate could say, look, this is what happens to the king of the Jews. This is how pathetic the Jewish people are. This is what kind of power the Jews have. Here's their king. They had pushed him into a corner. Now he was going to embarrass them. Brothers and sisters, friends here, maybe who are, are not sure what you believe about Jesus, I want you to see that even in this moment, right, this inscription above his head, even in this moment, even in the disdain of Pilate, right, he has no regard for Jesus. Even in this moment, the Lord shows himself as absolutely sovereign over all. While evil people do evil things with evil motives, the Lord is meaning all of it for an amazing good. I, I, was, I was just, I really enjoyed thinking about this this week. Okay, there's this inscription. It's written in three languages. Everybody can read it, right? The language of everyone in the Roman Empire. And we know that there are a lot of people present in Jerusalem right now. Why? It's a Passover, feast. We've been studying the Psalms of Ascent, right, for the last year or so. Songs that they would sing on the way to the feasts. And this is one of them, Feast of the Passover. Many Jews from all over the empire and even some Gentiles from over the empire came to this place. They were there to watch this. And this is written in all their languages. And so they're gathered. They witness the crucifixion. And then they go home. And what Pilate meant as a deterrent, right? That they're going to go home and they're going to say, hey, you don't want to do this. We saw these crucifixions happen. Don't do this, right? They're going to go home and they're going to go to their families and they're going to go to their villages and they saw it in their own language. They're going to say, you'll never believe what I saw. The king of the Jews was crucified. Who's the king of the Jews? That's this guy, Jesus. He, he, they said he did lots of miracles and he claimed to be the son of God. And, uh, and, but I guess not. You know, he said he was a savior, but I guess not. They killed him. King of the Jews is dead. What's the next feast that they're going to celebrate? Do you know? Mm. The next feast 
is the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost. And they're going to come back for the Feast of Pentecost in 40 days. Wait until they see what happened. They're going to come back and they're going to say, whatever, you know, whatever happened with that king of the Jews? Or maybe they're going to hear, remember that king of the Jews? He's not dead anymore. He's alive. His people are saying that he's alive. They're going to be there for the feast of Pentecost and they're going to hear, many of them, they're going to hear the apostle Peter stand up in front of them and say, listen to these words from Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the next feast they're going to go to. And they're going to hear. They read it. They read that inscription in their language. And now they're going to hear what happened to that king of the Jews. That he was not still dead. He was not in his grave. He was alive. I have no idea where I am. <laughs> Pilate's writing becomes a gospel messenger. Right? Pilate meant it to, to mock the Jewish people. He's now getting the gospel out to all the world. They're going to go back and they're going to tell the church at Rome 
Who founded the church at Rome? Do you know? It's a trick question. The church at Rome was founded before an apostle ever even got there. You know how they think it was founded? By people who were there at these feasts and then went back and told their friends and told their family members about this Jesus. And the gospel went forward and the church was built. Pilate's inscription becomes a messenger of the gospel. I think that's an amazing thing. And to this day, brothers and sisters, the Lord has given you the gift of words that you can speak in a language that people can understand so that they can hear the gospel. Because the gospel is words, right? People don't get saved because I'm nice, right? They're not saved by my niceness. They're not even saved by my genuine kindness or love. They are saved by a message. The message of the one who died and was raised for their sins. And God has given us the gift and the ability to learn all languages. We were having lunch Friday here, over here at the Hope House, talking about the gift of sign language. That's not a barrier. There's a language for all to hear the good news. And Pilate became an unwitting gospel proclaimer by the message he wrote above Jesus' head. All right, I got I to move on. The fulfillment as Jesus hangs on the cross, as the crowd looks on, screaming and hissing, John points us to Psalm 22, which we started the service with, to show us that this scene this part of the scene was a fulfillment of Scripture. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The four soldiers who crucified Jesus are now portrayed as dividing up his clothing. I'm not going to have time to get into some of the speculation about the tunic and why you know, it's seamless and doesn't represent anything. We are meant to see here, I believe, that, that this is what the soldiers did when they crucified people. They divided up their clothing, that, that this would have been a common occurrence for them, uh, and that this is like old hat, right? Here they are at the foot of the cross, gambling for Jesus' clothes, just like they did with any other criminal. The scene is horrific, loud, crazy, but the soldiers, they're used to it. They've done it a thousand times before. They're unconcerned about the events of the moment. Of all the things that John could focus on here, why does he devote a couple verses to this? Maybe a couple reasons that we see. Uh, do you still have your Bibles open? Good. So in 24, it says, you know, they, they, after they cast lots, the, the fulfillment in, in, uh, of Psalm 22. And it says, so the soldiers did these things. So is an interesting word. It's almost as if John is saying they did it because God ordained for them to do it, to fulfill the scriptures. They didn't know that. They didn't say like, oh, there's prophecies about this in the Old Testament that the Hebrews talk about. So let's divide up his clothes so we can fulfill the prophecies. That is not an obstacle to God. He accomplishes all that is promised. And so we are meant to see that these soldiers become another fulfillment of scripture. 
They did it because they were decreed to do it by God himself. The soldiers acted of their own accord and they fulfilled the sovereign plan of God. Just like Judas, just like the Jewish leaders, just like Herod, just like Pilate, the Lord is sovereign over all of their actions. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that is written and foreshadowed about the Messiah. All of it. A fun exercise you could do. Fun, maybe encouraging would be a better word. Spend time in, in a small group, whether a life group or having people over for lunch or dinner. Talk about all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, the direct prophecies of Scripture that Jesus fulfilled. See how many you can name. Think about how many shadows that Jesus fulfills in, in Scripture uh, in this passage or in other passages. How many of them does Jesus fulfill? I mean, I just sat and thought about it for a few minutes. You see a couple even just in these few verses, right? You could talk about Isaac, right? carrying his own wood up the hill with his father, that he was going to be the sacrifice, foreshadowing the one who was to come. You could talk about Joseph, the brother who was unjustly sold into slavery and imprisoned. There's lots of them. Direct fulfillments of Psalm 22. Examine for yourself. Ask others who you trust spiritually. If you're, if you're doubting, like, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the one who they foretold? I believe that he stands the test. And, and we're also meant to see in this part the stark contrast between the soldier's posture and that of the women and John. So back, looking back in 24. So we said, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. This was, as I said, old hat to the soldiers. They had done this many times before. They seemed to be apathetic to the situation. Crucify, divide up the clothing, lather, rinse, repeat. I pray that we would not be those who only look to Jesus as the provider of stuff, who can sit at the foot of the cross and yet ignore the great gospel call can miss, you know, they're, they're, they're going after his clothing and they're missing the message that's being delivered and the salvation that's being offered. And we can trifle about in our lives with shirts and tunics and when are you going to give me stuff? And we can miss that everlasting life, forgiveness and righteousness are put right in front of our eyes. Salvation was so near to these soldiers and they were not seeing it. It was of no significance to them as they divided up Jesus' clothes. But while the soldiers are indifferent with our final segment this morning, while the soldiers are indifferent, on the contrary, in verse 25, we have these women and John. Trivia question. How many women are standing there? <laughs> it's, it's totally insignificant, but every commentary I read this week was like, there's a great deal of speculation on how many women were actually standing at the, at the cross. Uh, because the way this sentence is structured, it could be, you could get two, 
You could get three or you could get four, right? It could be that Mary or his mother and his mother's sister then refer to the two names that are actually mentioned, that Mary has already been remarried to a man named Clopas. No, we're going no on that one. It doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. You could go with three, that Mary, the wife of, wife of Clopas, was actually Mary's sister, which brings in, you know, the George Foreman effect of like, why do you name all your kids the same thing? Uh, <laughs> and the most likely answer is that there are four women standing here. That it was Jesus' mother and her sister, and then also Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So we're going to go with four. Obviously, that is not the most important thing. It was common for loved ones to stand nearby the cross of their beloved who was being crucified. Uh, probably not too close, as the Roman guards would have kept an eye on this, but they were close. Obviously, everybody could read what was written above Jesus' cross, right? They, it was, they were close enough to read, and the loved ones were probably close enough to, to hear his words, hear his cries. It is difficult to fathom the emotion in this scene. Can you picture it? Mary's son is hanging on the cross. And people are jeering at him and hissing. He's done nothing wrong. They're spitting at him. They're mocking him. He's already, he's already been beaten. He's probably disfigured. And Mary is standing there. People were daring him to save himself. Mary had heard from the angel. She had heard prophecies made about Jesus. She had seen his ministry. Yet what could prepare any mother for this moment? Mary herself had moments of uncertainty about about Jesus as he began to minister publicly, right? We see that in the Gospels. His mom was there like, hey, why don't you come on back home, Jesus? Yet here she is at the foot of the cross. Mary herself uh, is probably a widow at this point. No account of Joseph and what Jesus does makes it seem like she had no one to care for her. So she's almost certainly a widow, which would, would have made her a cultural outcast. And now she's facing the death of her firstborn son. And Jesus has promised that he would return, but nobody understands that at this point. And in his last moments before dying, facing crippling agony, he is facing crippling agony, not just the physical pain, but being forsaken by his father for the first time, bearing the weight of all sin, the punishment for our sins, as he faces this agony, Jesus takes care of his mom. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, that the person who does not care for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. 
The scriptures are littered with stories of failed older brothers, failed oldest sons. Hey, kids, I've been saying a lot of heavy stuff. Can you think of any older brothers or oldest sons in the Bible who messed up? Any, older bro- any bad older brothers in the Bible? Go ahead. Cain was a bad older brother. I would say he did not do great. Who else? Esau. Not a good older brother. Any others? Joseph's brothers. Not great. Yeah, you keep thinking about it. Over and over and over in Scripture, we see the stories of the failed older brother, the failed firstborn son. Jesus tells a parable about a failed older brother, right? What does he talk? What, what parable is that? The prodigal son. Here, Jesus fulfills the role perfectly. He will be the son that we have not been. He will be the older brother that we need. Jesus makes sure that his mom will be protected and cared for. How does he do so? By entrusting her to John's care. Why not his own brothers and sisters? He did have brothers and sisters, just so we're clear. The Bible says it. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary had other children. Why didn't he entrust Mary to their care? I think there's a couple reasons we could see. One, they're not there. They're not there in Jesus' moment of greatest agony. They are absent in support of their brother. We know to this point, they are not believing that he is who he is. That will change. But they don't believe. And so they're not there for him to entrust Mary to their care. And secondly, they were spiritually unreliable even if they were there. Remember that they did not, as I said, believe in him. They thought he was nuts. So by entrusting Mary to John, Jesus cares not only for the physical well-being of his mom, but also for her spiritual well-being. There is such a beauty to the body of Christ, isn't there? The body of Christ is made up of young and old, strong and weak, needy and wealthy, gifts of various varieties, talents of of various, various varieties. I don't know if that's a, whatever, you know what I mean. Various gifts and talents, various life stages. That is a sign of health. That I can look out over and I see the youngest of the young, and I won't say the other part, and the well-aged. That is a blessing to a church body, to be represented by all generations. The Lord brings together a diverse group that we can care for one another in all seasons of life. When we share the Lord's Supper together, it, it may sound at times like, why do we keep exhorting people to church membership when we're talking about the Lord's Supper? Because we are the family of God. 
And what we do, we do as a family. We are called to belong to a church family. And so in this moment, Mary may be forgotten by society, but through Jesus, she would not be forgotten by the church. We see that John was obedient. And this call for the care of one another remains on all of us. And I, 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 I have a lot, lot more to say, but I would just say I commend us and pray that we would grow even more and more. That there would be none who slips through the cracks. That there would be none who's in a life stage that they don't fit in with the church. The, the glory of the gospel is that God brings together a group of people who would never otherwise be together because of what he has done. The glory of the gospel is that he makes sure that every single one of his children is cared for and protected and loved. And in this moment, Jesus protects those who are his. To his very dying breath, he is in such agony. When I have a cold, I don't want to be bothered. I'm not thinking about anybody else but myself because I'm so miserable because I have a runny nose. Jesus is in utter agony, and he looks down, and he takes care of his mom. It is good to know the protective care of the Lord Jesus. Mary would be safe, and we too can know the safety and the shelter that Jesus provides. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. As Jesus hangs upon the cross, he is providing the ultimate protection for his people. Jesus dies to become the place of shelter for his people, sheltering us from the righteous wrath of God against our sin. He takes the beating that we deserve. He bears the disgrace that we have earned. He pays the penalty for our sin. He provides the answer to the correct accusations of the devil. That this person ought not be counted as righteous because of what they have done. Jesus provides the answer that though that statement is true, all our debts are paid in full at the cross. Through his death, he shelters his people. He provides the place of refuge for his people. Through fiery trials, he is with us. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he is with us in trial. He is with us when our faith is tested. He will provide the protective care until we reach the beautiful shores of eternity. And even in eternity, in Revelation chapter 7, what will we be celebrating? Therefore, well, I'll read verse 13. I had the privilege of sharing on this passage, preaching at Gayton's mom's. Funeral, and it is a beautiful passage. The hope of all who believe in Jesus. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? 
I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Jesus protects Mary, and he protects us by means of this inglorious death. He bears our disgrace so that all who believe will be safe, now and forever safe, safe from the accusations of the enemy, safe in all that this life throws at us. And because this one who died was raised in victory on the third day, we are safe with him forever. The good shepherd lays down his life to make sure that his sheep are forever safe. May we trust in him today and all praise be to his name. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, that in your last moments, before your death, you took care of your mother. Thank you, Jesus, that even in this uh, heinous act, the gospel went forward. And thank you, most of all, that in this heinous act, we find salvation. And as we are about to approach your table today, Lord, search our hearts. there be any error in us, any sin that we are currently cherishing in our hearts, may we bring it before you today. Forgive us for where we have not loved you as we ought, as you are worthy of. Forgive us for where we have not loved one another as we ought. Forgive us for when we have been consumed by worldliness, pursuits of this world and forgetting you. Forgive us, Lord, where we have loved the things of this world too much. Where we have said you can have this portion of our lives but not, not others. Forgive us, we pray, Lord. And as we come to the table, may we be reminded that in Christ there is plentiful forgiveness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.